Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon would teach his students to give care when a verse gives your mind a hearty grip from which you cannot release yourself. He said, in such instances, you would need no further direction as to what to preach on. Uh, We've been in a series studying through the doctrines that define us, our theological DNA, Uh, but we're going to suspend that series today because this past week, a verse gave a hearty grip to my mind, one that I could not shake off, hard as I tried. A verse that is in our passage, it comes from 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. I tried to shake this verse from me, but as I said, I could not, and so the rest of your pastors consented to my preaching of this message. The New Testament, in places like 1 Corinthians 10, teach us that the examples of the Old Testament saints in the positive, and those who are not saintish in the negative, are there for our example, and we are to learn from them. And so their examples are instructive for us, and today we are going to look at the example of Saul, the rather bad example that Saul set in disobedience, while we also use it as an opportunity to explore the Lord of the, or the Lord's heart for obedience. So if you're taking notes, our sermon title comes right out of our text, To Obey is Better Than Sacrifice. We're going to read 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 23. Please follow along. This is what Holy Scripture says. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they left, or when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. 
The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed and went, on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak! And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, or Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, took, or took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice? Of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come in under your word, and we do not want to be guilty of Saul's sin. We do not want to reject it. And so we pray now that you would lead us, Lord. Uh, you are good and upright. You lead sinners in the way that we should go. And so we humble ourselves before you now. We say, speak, O Lord. We say, direct us. We say, to lead us. We say, make known if there is any wicked way in us, Lord, and teach us the paths of righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage is the turning point in the life of Saul. Uh, it's a defining moment and... It's scary to think that such moments exist. I mean, it's scary to think that moments like this really exist in our lives. Uh, this knowledge should make us more diligent and sober when we make decisions. There is a day in your life when you made a decision and everything turned on it. Everything turned on that day. There are decisions in your life that have set 
the course for your life. They have been defining moments, and that's because our choices really do matter. Our decisions really do matter. And so we want to consider carefully the choices that we have, the choices that the Lord gives us, the decisions that we have before him, and the paths of righteousness that he calls us to walk in. I have four points that I want to lead us through this passage with today. The first point is the command of God. The command of God. Verses 1 through 3 gives us God's command. Saul is to utterly destroy the people of Amalek. He's to wipe them out. And this is a test. This is a test. God is testing Saul to reveal his heart. Now, in the story of Saul's life, at this point, Saul has become a great king in the eyes of the world. Back in chapter 13, he had a relatively small army of about 600 men, but we read in our passage today that his army has grown to 200,000 plus. So he is now has a great army, he has had significant military success, so he's proven himself as a leader, the nation is following him, which means, by the world standards, he has become a great king. He is, in fact, exactly what the people asked for, a king just like all the other nations. The question is, will he also be a king after God's own heart? Will he also be great in the Lord's eyes? Because the king after God's own heart is a king who obeys God from the heart. Saul is not his own man, and neither are we. God is king. Saul may be king, but God is king of kings. And so God gives Saul a command to test him. Will he obey God from his heart? Samuel says in verse 1, listen to the words of the Lord. Listen to the words of the Lord. This is a covenant king's first priority. He is to listen and obey. This is a covenant king's first priority, and this is a covenant people's first priority. Christians, this is our first priority, to listen to the words of the Lord. We listen and obey. This is the very meaning of our confession, Christ is Lord. To confess Christ as Lord, but then to not obey him would be the height of hypocrisy. So for the Christian, obedience is not a dirty word. For the real Christian, for the true Christian, obedience is not a dirty word. It does not smell of legalism. It does not smell of religiosity. To the Christian, obedience is a wonderful word. It is actually the evidence of our faith. It is actually the evidence, the proof that we are saved. This is what Jesus teaches. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 14, 21. Obeying Jesus is evidence of our love for Jesus. Likewise, the Apostle Paul teaches that the gospel turns us from the disobedience of unbelief to the obedience of faith. The gospel turns us from the disobedience of unbelief to the obedience of faith. In fact, the book of Romans, Paul's great magisterial work on the gospel, his great exposition on the doctrines of the gospel, is a book that ends, chapter 1, verse 5, and, or begins, that's end, been, okay, begins, chapter 1, verse 5, and ends, chapter 16, verse 26, both saying, I have written about this gospel, I've written these great doctrines about this gospel, that I might bring you about the obedience of faith. 
that I might bring you to the obedience of faith. Another way of saying all this is that obedience is the fruit of our faith. It is the proof of our faith. So think about it like this. Consider it like this. If you get sick and you go to the doctor and he prescribes you a medication with the instruction to take it every day, what do you do? You go home, you probably probably go home and Google it, right? Like, what in the world did he just, what am I taking? I don't know if I'm okay with it. But let's just, okay, what do you do? You go home, you get a prescription, take it every day. What do you do? If you trust him, then you follow his orders. If you trust him, then you obey his instructions. You believe that he wants to make you well. You believe that he knows better than you do what will make you well. And so you obey him. Likewise, with God, if you trust him, you obey him. If you trust him, you obey him. Obedience is the evidence of our faith, which makes, makes disobedience, disobedience is the evidence of unbelief. Disobedience is the evidence of present unbelief. And so in our passage, the command of God comes to Saul. It's a test of faith. The command sifts through Saul's faith, and his disobedience reveals his unbelief. His disobedience reveals that ultimately his faith lies elsewhere than God. But we must be quick not to judge Saul. We must be quick not to judge Saul because Saul's example is not here to make us feel better about ourselves. Saul's example is here to call us to examine ourselves. Saul's example is here to call us to examine ourselves and to watch out that we not make his mistakes. It's a temptation common to all of us to have our consciences enlightened. That we might know the scriptures or that we might know the things that God has called us to do, things that we should be doing, to know things that we ought to do, but the common temptation is to neglect it. The common temptation is to neglect it. So examine yourself. Are you living in neglect of something you know you ought to do? Are you neglecting something God has put on your heart? Are you neglecting a word that he gave to you? Is there something in your life where you are compromising the command of God? Are you going too far with your girlfriend? Have you cheated on your schoolwork? Or, it's tax season, have you cheated on your taxes? Do you and your wife live separate lives? Are you holding back your tithe? Are you hiding some secret sin? The commands of God sift our faith. They reveal its true metal. And the Lord has brought you here today not to condemn you, but to liberate you. Not to condemn you, but to confront your compromise, to confront your disobedience, and to lovingly lead you to repentance. Which brings us to point number two then this morning, the confrontation of disobedience. The confrontation of disobedience. In verses four through eight, it looks like Saul is going to obey. He gathers his soldiers, he shows mercy to the Kenites, and then he attacks the Amalekites. But 
He only partially obeys God. God's command was to strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have, not sparing any, but killing both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. We'll come back to the tragedy of all that in in a bit. But what happened? What did Saul actually do? Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So here we see that Saul selectively obeys God. Saul selectively obeys God. He keeps the best and destroys the West. He only partially obeys, and sadly, this is the habit that all of us can have too. We partially obey. We selectively obey. We treat obedience to God like we might order a meal from Chick-fil-A. We treat obedience to God like we might order a meal from Chick-fil-A. You know, we go to Chick-fil-A, we give me a chicken sandwich, and give me a large fry, and give me lots of, lots of Chick-fil-A sauce. At least that's how I order food at Chick-fil-A. I pick and I choose what I like. And the habit that we can have is we pick and we choose what we like to obey. We pick and we choose how we want to obey God. We pick and choose the commands we want to obey, but God is not like Chick-fil-A. God is the king. And you do not selectively serve the king. You do not partially obey the king. You obey his commands exactly as he gives them. You obey his commands exactly as he gives them. Now what we see happen in verse 11 gives us insight into two important things. In verse 11, two important things we see here. The first is that Saul's disobedience does not just only anger God, but it in fact grieves God. It not only angers God, but it grieves the Lord. Samuel, or he tells Samuel, the Lord tells Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now you may read this and think, well, that's, that's strange. <laughs> How can God have regret? How can God have regret? Doesn't that imply that he made a bad decision? But that's exactly what Samuel says is not the case over in verse 29. We didn't get to read it, but you can look at it later. He says, God does not have regret like a man. That's verse 29. And this is one of those instances where it's a funny passage, right? It's, It's over here in verse 11, it says, God has regret. And then over in verse 29, it says, God does not have regret. Wait. So does he or doesn't he? Yes. (laughs) That's how it works in scripture sometimes, right? But let's not not think that Samuel didn't know what he was talking about here, okay? Let's not think that the author of scripture didn't know what he was talking about here. So that must be a kind of regret that the Lord has and a kind of regret that he does not have. And this is where we look at the clearer areas of scripture. We look to those places that are clearer in scripture and let them kind of clear up the cloudier places in scripture, okay? So passages like Psalm 139 teach us that God knows and sees everything. God knows and sees everything. He has numbered every one of our days. So nothing surprises God. He knows everything. He has numbered every single one of your days. They're all written in his book. And so God knows and sees everything. So that means this passage cannot be an instance of the Lord being flustered over a lack of foresight. Wait, what? Saul just disobeyed? Breaking headline. What? 
How did I miss that one? I thought he was going to be a great guy. I just, oh man, this is, ah, oh, what a bummer. Ruined my whole day. I mean, this is not the regret that the Lord has. The Lord is not flustered over a lack of foresight here, over a bad decision on his part, but the Lord is grieving over disobedience. The Lord is grieving over disobedience. We see the same thing in Genesis 6, 6, where we're told that the Lord grieves, or that our sin grieves him to his heart. It grieves him to his heart. And the same is in uh, the New Testament when Paul writes to the Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. I think often when we know that we are living in sin, our inclination is to think that God is mad at us. How can I come to God? God is mad at me. I don't know how to deal with this. God's probably mad at me. When the reality is God's first heartbeat towards you is sadness, regret. We grieve the Lord. God's grief is something that we need to know about. That God is not some kind of cold slab of concrete, relatively emotionally indifferent about our unbelief. Or his one emotion towards disobedience is not just anger, but like a spouse or a parent. It is sadness. We grieve God with our disobedience. That's the first thing we should note in verse 11. The second is that Samuel prays. The second thing we should note in verse 11 is that Samuel prays all night before confronting Saul. We read, Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. There is much needed wisdom in this little nugget. Before we confront someone, we ought to labor in prayer. Before we confront someone, including our spouse, we ought to labor in prayer. We need to labor in prayer, and this is for their sake, but it's for our sake as well. The Apostle Paul teaches, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Galatians 6.1 so Samuel prays all night before he goes and confronts Saul early in the morning. And in verses 12 through 23, we have the confrontation of Saul and his disobedience. So let's see what happens here. In verse 13, Samuel comes to Saul and Saul says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So the first thing Saul does is he pretends his partial obedience is full obedience. The first thing he does is he pretends his complete or incomplete obedience was complete obedience. And we do the same thing. We teach our kids, I teach my kids in our home, you probably, many of you probably have the same thing as well. We teach our kids, obedience is fast, happy, all the way. You probably have something like that, right? Fast, happy, all the way. So that means dragging your feet to get something done is not obedience. That means doing something grumpily, complaining, you know, throwing dishes while you're doing them, that's not obedience. And neither is only doing part of the job. If I tell you to pick up all the toys on the floor and you only pick up part of them, partial obedience is not full obedience. So he tries to pretend that his partial obedience is true obedience, and Samuel says, oh yeah? then what's with all the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? 
And what is this lowing of the oxen I have heard? I think it's when I go into my kids' room sometimes, when I've, especially the littler ones, I say, go clean your room. And then they come back down like two minutes later and they're like, it's clean. And I'm like, really? And I go up and I look in the room and I'm like, what are all these matchbox cars laying on the floor? You know, what is all these blocks like over here? Well, I shoved them to the side. Okay, well, that is not, I shoved them under the, you know, the other day I went into the room and it was, they were all inside the bed under the covers. Samuel has caught Saul red-handed, and Saul ought to repent. He ought to repent of his sin, but instead he tries to wiggle out of it. Instead he tries to wiggle out of it by blame-shifting. So note the they and the we in verse 15. Saul says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. You can imagine, you almost imagine him pointing like, they, those guys, are, all those people, are, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So Saul shifts the blame. He shifts the blame onto his people. He shifts the blame onto other people, just like Adam shifted the blame onto Eve, and just like some of you are doing when you refuse to forgive someone because of what they did to you. You won't forgive them because of what they did to you. Or just like you might be doing if you refuse to work out the problems in your marriage because of the woman God gave you and what she did to you how she treats you. Or how some of you might be dishonoring your parents or not obeying them because they just don't understand you. They just don't get you. Like Saul, we try and wiggle out of conviction by blame shifting. God, I don't want to, I can't submit to my husband because he is like this and this and this and this. I know I should love my wife with understanding, but she... We try and wiggle on conviction by blame shifting, just like Saul. And another tactic Saul tries, that we will probably be familiar with, is he tries to appeal to his good intentions. He tries to appeal to his good intentions. Uh, Saul says, hey, Listen, we kept them all for worship, though. We kept them all for worship. Yeah, we broke. Okay, so yeah, we broke God's commands. Okay, we didn't do everything he asked for, but, but our intentions were really good. Our intentions, were, we, we kept them for worship. And we do the same thing. We justify looking at pornography, saying, well, it helps me to not go too far with my girlfriend. Or we justify not tithing saying, well, you know, I'm trying to responsibly pay off debt and get down these bills and work on this over here and save up for this. Or we justify missing church and community group because we say, well, I've got to work and I have to provide for my family. Like Saul, we justify our disobedience by appealing to our good intentions, but Samuel, I mean, you got to feel the strike of this. Samuel won't buy it. He says, stop. It's like, enough already. We might say today, like, cut the crap, dude. I mean, this is ridiculous. Samuel says, you may, listen to what he says, you may be little in your own eyes, but are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? In other words, take responsibility, dude. 
take responsibility for this. Stop trying to wiggle out. Stop trying to blame others. Stop trying to justify what you did. Stop pointing fingers. Just take responsibility for it. And Samuel says in verse 19, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil, note this word, in the sight of the Lord? In the sight of the Lord. Samuel calls attention here to the sight of the Lord. It's like he's saying, listen, you may be able to deceive me, and you may be even able to deceive yourself some, but you'll never deceive the Lord. It's everything is done in his sight. He sees everything. He knows the intentions of the heart. He knows your words before you speak them. Everything is done inside the Lord. You cannot deceive God here. He sees all, so stop with the excuses. Through Samuel, God calls Saul to repent. And through Saul's example, God is calling us to repent. God is calling us to repent. But Saul, instead of repenting, in verses 20 and 21, doubles down. He just leaves blaming people again and insisting it was all done to bless the Lord. It all had good intentions. And so what Saul does is he minimizes his sin. He's confronted with his sin. God may be confronting some of you in your sin today. But what Saul did in response to it, instead of repenting, he minimizes his sin and he maximizes his righteousness. He minimizes his sin, and he maximizes his righteousness, which leads to the very heart of this passage, verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? We're going to come back to that verse in a few moments, but before we do, I want to have... uh, a little bit of a dissection, a little bit of a dive into the scandal of disobedience. So point number three, the scandal of disobedience. If God delights in obedience, a reasonable question to ask is, why does he hate disobedience? If God delights in obedience, why does he hate disobedience? And I see in this story at least three reasons why God hates disobedience. I think this story helps us to look under the hood and discover some of what drives our disobedience and helps to reveal something of the nature of the scandal of disobedience. So I see three reasons here why God hates disobedience. First is, <clears throat> excuse me, first is disobedience reveals misplaced pleasure. Disobedience reveals misplaced pleasure. God commanded Saul to vote the Amalekites to destruction, and this was, be a, was, this was to be a whole burnt offering to the Lord. They were to be a whole burnt offering to the Lord, but what Saul and the people did was they saved the best of the livestock for a peace offering. They saved the best of the livestock for a different kind of offering than the burnt offering. And the reason for this is because a burnt offering offering is to be fully consumed. But the other offerings, like a peace offering, you would enjoy some of the meal. You would enjoy some of the meat. You got to partook. We see this in verse 19 when Samuel says that they pounced on the spoil. They pounced on the spoil like a hungry predator eager to fill its belly. They sprung on the chance to get a steak dinner out of all of this. John Piper says of this passage, Saul and his people delighted more in the meat of sheep and oxen than they did the smile and fellowship of God. 
They delighted more in the meat of sheep and oxen than they did the smile and fellowship of God. And this is one reason why God hates our disobedience. It is motivated by a delight. It is motivated by a pleasure outside of God, other than God, which is a great insult to God. It prefers something more than God. So you are dating that person that you shouldn't be dating exactly because you delight in them more than you delight in the Lord. You're looking at pornography, or maybe you're looking at soft porn, uh, what I consider soft porn, which are movies that toe the line, movies that are right on that edge and maybe just slightly cross over, but no one really call it pornography, but you know why you're watching it. You know what it interests you. It's because you delight in lust and sexual pleasure more than you do the love and the pleasure of God. You're not tithing because you delight in the comfort and the security money buys you more than the comfort and the security God promises you. You're not living in the light of Christian fellowship because you delight in the deeds of darkness more than you do the God of light. Disobedience is fueled by misplaced pleasure. Pleasure is outside of God. Every single time. Every single time. Second, disobedience reveals misplaced wisdom. Disobedience reveals misplaced wisdom. Look at what Samuel says in verse 23. Maybe this stood out to you when I read it. It's kind of a surprising, a shocking thing. He says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. Did you notice that when we read that the first time? It's kind of strange, isn't it? Like, Nonsensical. Like, what, what do you, why, why are you comparing the two? What, is that, what does that mean? Rebellion is as the sin of divination. What is divination? Divination is looking to uh, signs, omens, um, supernatural powers to tell you what is right and to tell you what to do. It's reading tea leaves to tell you what is right and to tell you what to do. And so he's saying disobedience, rebellion is as having a seance. I mean, so just imagine if, um, you know, I mean, can you imagine being in community group with me if we were in small group together and we came in and we're all like talking and we're going to share and I'm living in the light, you know, I'm going to tell you about And so I'm like, yeah, this week, man, I just, I got out my old Ouija board and, you know, I was just trying that, you know, I was trying that out. I was seeing, seeing seeing what I could learn maybe about what to do with my life. and Wouldn't that be the, str- like, what kind of pastor are you that would consult a Ouija board? Disobedience is as divination. It's looking to something other than God for what is true and what is right. It's putting your faith or your trust or your look for knowledge about this life in some source outside of God, ultimately trusting in your own wisdom and your own authority. And that is a great insult to God. Third, disobedience reveals misplaced faith. 
reveals misplaced faith. Look again what Samuel says in verse 23, the second line of it now. He says, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. It's as iniquity and idolatry. In other words, the arrogance of disobedience reveals an idol in our life. Something other than God that we trust in and obey. Something other than God that we believe will bless us better than God will bless us. So if you have to have, if you're driven by the admiration of others, if you have to have control over your health, if you have to have respect in your marriage, if you must have pleasure, if you must have their apology, if you must have obedience from your kids, if you must have order in your home, if you must have that promotion, if you have to have so much money in the bank account, if you must have anything more than God and his will for your life, then you're going to compromise his commands. You're going to compromise his commands because you are serving another God. You are serving another God to get from that God the blessing that you want. And that also is a great insult to the Lord. So disobedience is hated and punished by God because at every point it betrays him, it abates him, and it attacks his glory. Disobedience at every point betrays the Lord, it abates him, it brings him low, and it attacks his glory. You know, many who read this story, the story we just are reading, Genesis 15 today, um, reading through this, many people are not half as bothered by Saul's disobedience as they are by God's severe command, his severe call to obedience. Right? That's probably what struck you when I read through this, was, wait a minute, did the Lord just, did the Lord just command that he kill Men and women, children and infants? Like, that's troubling. That sounds horrid. And that's because it is horrid. It's a severe command. It's not an unjust one. It's a horrid one, but it's not an unjust one. Uh, This is not ethnic cleansing. This was not because they were not Israelites. Uh, Saul was not faulted for letting the Canaanites go in verse 6. So this wasn't ethnic cleansing. Neither was it a war of conquest. They weren't supposed to take anything from them. There wasn't supposed to be prisoners or prizes. So this wasn't ethnic cleansing, and neither was this a war of conquest. What this was was a just judgment. What this was was a just judgment. God was punishing the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they came out of Egypt. The Amalekites trailed Israel, they went behind Israel when they came out, and they picked off anyone who was lagging behind. They picked off the women and the children, the sick and the elderly. You can read about it in Exodus 17 and in Deuteronomy 25. So these were a godless, these were immoral, and these were a wicked people. And it has now been 300 years since that happened. It has now been 300 years. So let's not say that the Lord is not slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. It had been 300 years, but they had not changed. It had been 300 years, but they had not repented. Samuel calls them sinners in verse 8 by the revelation of God. And later in this, in this chapter, if you read up and through verse 33, um, Agag, the, the king, is condemned to execution for his war crimes. Samuel charges him, your sword has made women childless. So these people have not changed. They still do not fear the, God, fear the Lord. They are a godless, immoral, and wicked people. And for this, Amalek was to be wiped out and Israel was God's instrument to do so. This was a just judgment. Because friends, God is holy. God is holy. And there is coming a day when every man, woman, and child will be judged by God. 
He will separate those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ from those who are stubbornly refusing to worship the God of heaven. And that is the full gospel. That is the fullness of the gospel. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, the gospel is the announcement of both the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. The gospel is the announcement that God's people will enjoy his favor forever while his enemies receive their judgment. Judgment is actually at the heart of our religion. It is not the heart of our religion, but it is right there at the center of it. And salvation comes through judgment. Salvation comes through judgment. God's love has to work through God's judgment on our sin. That's why we need Jesus. That is why we need Jesus. This is why we need Jesus as our lamb. He is the sacrifice for our sin. Jesus has borne our judgment for us so that all that remains is God's favor for us. Salvation comes through judgment, and this is why it's also so good to have Jesus as our advocate, to have Jesus as our lawyer in heaven, ever interceding for us, ever pleading our case to the Father, saying, Father, I have suffered for their sin, Father, I have suffered for that specific sin, And he argues, my righteousness is now that person's now and forever. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the only hope we have before a holy God, is that judgment has come through salvation, and Jesus is our salvation. So the real scandal in this passage is not actually the destruction of the Malachites, because we should all be destroyed for our sin. Their fate should be ours. But for the grace of God, there go we. The real scandal in this passage is that none of us are actually having the fate, if we are in Jesus Christ, that the Amalekites have. The real scandal in this passage, the real scandal in this passage is that Saul, who saw what happened to the Amalekites for their faithlessness, for their godlessness, for their immorality, still went on and disobeyed God. That is the scandal in this passage. His, re- his resilience to stay disobedient. His refusal to obey God completely. And the real scandal today, the real scandal today would be first, if you have never repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ, that you would leave here continuing in disobedience against the holy God, when his offer to you is his son in your place, when his offer to you is the free gift of salvation, when his offer to you is you need not die in your sin, for Christ has died for you. Don't leave here without believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That would be a scandal. But the second scandal would be for any of us convicted by God any of us convicted of our sin, to read about the Amalekites, to hear the gospel preached again, and to leave here today not willing to change. To leave here today continuing in the sin of Saul. God is confronting us in our sin today because God desires to save us and God desires to change us. This brings us finally to point number four this morning. Point number four. On the overhead, it says the desire of God. I would like to change that. 
In the moment, we're going to change it to the delight of God. The delight of God. Verse 22 again. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Friends, God is not after sacrifices. God is not after sacrifices. It's all his anyway. He doesn't need cows. The Lord does not need cows. The Lord does not need cows. He has the cattle on a thousand hill. The Lord does not need our sacrifices. This is not what he delights in. You know who needs sacrifices? We need sacrifices. They needed the sacrifices of lambs and sheep. We need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We need sacrifices to approach a holy God. But God does not need our sacrifices, and God does not delight in our sacrifices. Sheep and cows are what we need. Jesus Christ is what we need. God delights in a heart given to him. God delights in a will freely given. God delights in hearts that are offered to him in love, in trust, and therefore walking in obedience. And this is why Jesus Christ is all of God's delight. This is why the Son is the delight of the Father. For Jesus Christ only ever did what his Father instructed him to do. Jesus was fully obedient. Jesus obeyed his Father completely. And this is why he's the perfect sacrifice and substitute for us. This is why he's the Savior that we need. Because we can never hope to delight God in the way that he would like to be delighted. Right? All we could do is come and say, I blew it again. I messed up again. I failed again. But you, Lord, delight in being obeyed. And that's why we always have to come through Jesus Christ. We come through the delight of the Father. We come through Jesus. We come in Jesus' name. He obeyed in my place. He is my righteousness. He became my sin. That, and, I, and I received his righteousness that I might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. We come through Jesus Christ. We come through the delight of the Father. That's good news. Praise the Lord, Right? Praise the Lord. He sent his delight to save us. He sent his delightful son. But he sent him that he might win our hearts. He sent him that he might capture our will for the Lord's sake. Broken though it may be. What is the great cry in Romans chapter 12, right? In light of the mercies of God, let us present our lives as living sacrifices in light of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Has he not won our hearts? Has he not gotten our wills? Do we not want to offer them back to him as broken as they may be, but as best as we can give back? And so that is what the rest, that's what, that's what Christianity is all about. The Lord getting our heart, the Lord going after more and more of our heart. Remember the, the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2? Remember he's confronting the different churches, the seven churches? And what is, what's the deal with Ephesus, the church of Ephesus? Um, he says, you're able to test and find out false teachers. So this, this church has got game. They've got good theology. They know what's right and wrong. They're sharp. They know what to believe. But, he says, you're guilty of this. But I have this against you, Jesus says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've got all the right theology but you've lost your heart. You've lost your love. Christianity is not just a way of life. Christianity is a heart religion. Mark 12, 33, our Lord says, we are to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more 
than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Love is better. Also, Luke chapter 11, verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Friends, disobedience is hated and punished by God because at every point it betrays him, it abates him, and it attacks his glory. But obedience is God's delight because it is the exact opposite. Obedience is the fruit of faith. Obedience is the proof of love. Obedience enthrones and honors God as God. And so obedience characterizes the life of those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. In preaching on this passage, Mr. Spurgeon appealed to his congregation, and I make the same appeal to you through his words. He said, may I put this earnestly to the members of this church, and indeed to all of you who hope that you are followers of Christ. Is there anything that you are neglecting? Is there any sin in which you are indulging? Is there one passage of scripture which you dare not look in the face because you are living in neglect of it? then let Samuel's voice come to you and set you seeking for more grace. To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Friends, this is the temptation we all struggle with. This is the temptation common to us all. We minimize our sins and we maximize our righteousness. We minimize our sins and we maximize our righteousness. We try to wiggle out of the light of conviction that we may hide ourselves in some shadow of darkness. We all dress ourselves in fig leaves like our first parents to hide our shameful sins. And this is why at this church we must cultivate a gospel culture. This is why at this church we must cultivate a gospel culture that includes both grace and repentance. It is because of the gospel that you can come to this church just as you are. It is because of the gospel that you can come to this church just as you are. You can come here just as you are with all your problems. There is grace for you no matter what your sins are, no matter what your history is. There is more grace in Christ than sin in you. And we will never get tired of teaching that message. We'll never get tired of proclaiming that. That there is more grace in Christ than sin in us. You can come as you are. But because of that same gospel truth, we would say, you can't stay as you are. You can't stay as you are. Exactly because there is more grace in Christ than sin in you. And exactly because he gives more grace to the humble, you must grow in repentance. And you must grow in obedience. And you must grow in Christ-likeness. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So here's our conclusion. Here's our conclusion today. God inspired this passage. God inspired this passage to warn us away from Saul's example. He inspired this passage to tell us, do not follow after Saul. Do not continue in any form of disobedience, but instead, follow David's example. Follow after David, another king who sinned and was also confronted by a prophet. But unlike Saul, David immediately repented and took full responsibility for his rebellion. In Psalm 51, he says to the Lord, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The only sacrifice, the only thing the Lord wants you to bring to the altar is a broken and contrite heart. What he wants from you is a broken and a contrite heart. And if that is something you have to give today, then come. Come to the altar. Come to the throne of grace. Come to Jesus, who is gentle and lowly of heart. He will receive you. He will forgive you. He will give you grace upon grace. And he will give you grace to take up his yoke and follow after him. For to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Psalm 139 again says that you know us all the way down. You know our thoughts, you know our deeds, you know our words before we speak them. You know everything about us, Lord. And so sitting under your word today, we invite you, come and let there be known, search us, O Lord, if there be any wicked way in us. We pray that you would make it known, Lord, for we do not wish to continue in stubborn disobedience, but rather we would bring to you a broken and contrite heart, and we would strive for obedience. God, we come to you through Jesus Christ, who is truly your real and full and whole delight, your obedient son, your greatest treasure, and we rejoice in the fact that we are saved in him. He is our hope. He is our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.